0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified Program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
0: I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio.
2: Welcome to Magnifico Radio, bringing you the latest in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. And I'm your host, Kate Black, and this is episode 13 and the final one of season one. Um, Jewelry is a repository of hopes, dreams, and memories, yet the human environmental toll that can lie behind the luster makes it another aspect of our wardrobes and purchase decisions that we need to examine. And today I'm honored to be joined by sustainable jewelry maven, Melissa Joy Manning. Melissa is a designer and entrepreneur at the forefront of modern eco-conscious jewelry and is also responsible for spearheading the sustainable conversation within the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, as the co-chair of the first-ever sustainability committee that encourages designers within the CFDA to implement eco-friendly practices within their own businesses. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks, Kate. Fashion and current supply chain issues are making headlines fairly often Um, These days, but for jewelry, the movie Blood Diamond was the first time any of us ever had a glimpse of the nefarious side of diamonds. And that was just diamonds, and that was over 10 years ago. And rarely have we heard further about the child labor and gold mining, or the conflict minerals that are deeper and beyond the blood diamonds, or the slave and child labor and jewelry manufacturing. What's your biggest concern about this industry?
3: Our future. I hear you say that, and even as a jeweler who loves what I do have studied it, I'm like, oh, God, I need to go do something else. Um, but I do think that jewelry has such a strong historical foundation rooted in a lot of the kind of cultural concepts you mentioned about declaring your affiliation with tribe, with with your with your culture with your heritage that people do really always want jewelry and i don't think they know what's necessarily behind it there there is this luxury kind of concept where people maybe just are declaring wealth and status and maybe don't have the same concern that other people do but i i do think that the movement of people Really understanding where things come from makes them more attached to what they buy. So within jewelry, I think there's a double concept there. Then if you're buying something, um, whether it's to celebrate an engagement um, or something of a milestone in your life, you also are also going to want to know where it comes from. So within that, I think the future of jewelry, is going to be very interesting because as this becomes more transparent, there are going to be more laws enacted that if the industry doesn't come together to develop with our lawmakers, it's going to be very challenging to get our hands-on raw material. We can see that with the Frank Dodd Act that uh, Senate enacted without any kind of um, feedback from the industry, and and that created this really, really big challenge for us and how we get gold and how we do our reporting that we're not laundering money and then now banks won't touch you to give you loans if you're in jewelry or advertise that they work with you. Um, And so now there's the same kind of movement happening behind the scenes around stones. And if we can't collaboratively come together as an industry to talk about our impact and how we want to make proactive changes, we are going to face the same thing. And it's going to be really hard to even get stones to make product. And then if you can't make the stones... Then you create even a bigger backlash because you've got a whole black market that's going on that's even more disruptive and dangerous. This is so interesting.
2: This is so interesting because, in a lot of, um, I told you with eco sessions, we do a lot of panels and the conversation always kind of ends on legislation and the importance of legislation. Um, So it's interesting to see that there's. There is a need, and obviously the industry, not just jewelry, but the beauty industry, fashion also. Everybody's looking for some sort of support from above, but maybe without that communication or collaboration, it's not helpful.
3: I mean, that's a very interesting question. Like We hope... um... The dreamers amongst us hope that self-regulation works. Right, that once you learn something, you can't really go back. And you think, Jesus, every time I'm buying this stone, maybe like lapis, am I accidentally collaborating with the Taliban because that's how they're funding a lot of um, their nefarious. Re- There's a whole. So you hope that that happens, but. You know, you can't guarantee that it does, but then you can't also guarantee that big government's going to do anything about it either because, like, when I think it's interesting to be on a food network and we talk about the the parallels within the food industry and the eco-industry of clothing and the FDA labeling around organic, and then that is such an issue because small farmers who are organic can afford to do it or they allow a certain amount of chemicals within it that truly aren't organic. So if we ask for that same kind of stewardship or guardianship within... An, an organization, a government Especially one that now has a president-elect Who disavows global warming how do, how do we Come together as a community And say these are the things that we need to do And I think that there is some really interesting work Like the JVC, the Jewelers Vigilance Committee Is a legal organization um, And for the first time ever Created with some other jewelry designers um, As well as miners And gem vendors A roundtable discussion in March of this year wherein everyone got together and kind of talked about the needs and how we can um, attack those needs to make it better. and it's, it, So we're finally in a place where we're all talking about it. It's just a matter of now what do we do with it. And
2: are other associations in that? Like are the ethical metalsmiths in there and the, um, the No Dirty Gold campaigners?
3: I believe so. Um, I was on maternity leave, so I, I didn't get to go. I was working with them right up until the end. I mean, Ethical Metalsmiths does do um, a lot of work within the industry, too, with JVC. And, and that's kind of what's come up a lot recently, is there's no singular organization or trade organization within our industry that not only regulates this, but even kind of holds it all in one place. So, Like, you can rabbit hole. So if you look at one site, you go to another, you go to another. And you could hear ten different stories about the same thing. Some of the, some of the stuff's the same. Some of it's different. There's no holding. There's no resource. There's no one place where any of this information is held. And that's not only... A, a real big problem for designers, it's really challenging for consumers. They don't even know what questions to ask. Yeah. like no one's even published anything like what are the ten questions to ask when you buy a piece of jewelry? you know if and and I think that we did we did a blog on that. like here's ten things that you should ask. you know, um if something's made in the u s a. Well, what does that really mean? What is their water usage? What is their chemical usage? What is their energy usage? Where are they getting their stones? What's their metal? Like, there's just this blanket born in the USA thing, like, great, but what's going on behind there? There's a lot of questions consumers have to be empowered to ask, but then they don't even know where what to ask.
2: So let's go back. Let's go back to when you like decided that you were going to start your own business and you were going to be a jeweler. Like, did you have the blinders on a little bit? Like you grew up in Northern California, so you must've had some perspective about what was going on in the industry or what, what, what things that you might landmines you might try to avoid, but did it start to open up the more you worked in it? Or did you like, how, how did you, how did you approach your business, starting your business, and then how did you navigate through learning as you started to uncover some things?
3: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've always been just a, a, a fashion girl. Like, I grew up in Northern California, outside Berkeley. Activism was in my family. I mean, my dad worked at UC Berkeley, you know, worked. You know, went through Topeka, People's Park as a teenager. I mean, everything around me was about, you can create change. But at the same time, I used to line all of... The, the walls in my room with uh, L covers when Isabel and Gilles Ben Simone were still there, and it was like these beautiful ethereal fashion landscapes and um, I didn't understand how they worked together and I even when I started my business, I started my business because I loved to make jewelry. And when I I was very lucky to go to a public art school when they still existed, where San Francisco State University had a great arts department, it was you know just part of the program. I didn't have to pay thirty thousand dollars to go to art school, and um, graduated and just really couldn't get a job doing what I loved to do, which was jewelry. And I was in high end retail, and so I started my business with like five hundred dollars with the idea that I was going to create. More jobs for other jewelers, because this was post-NAFTA. Everything with jewelry was made offshore, Mexico, Bali, China. India? Idea, um, some, yeah, India. The idea that I would create more community. So for me, my, my kind of journey started not around the environmental, but around the social um, around being able to create a community and create jobs for other people. And that was always in my business model. And way back in the day, this was 97, like I'd proactive in my business plan. My mom's like, that's not a word. And um, <laughs> it was just kind of like no one, all everyone I met was like, you can't do this. There's no way you can make jewelry on and be competitive with the brands. And I was like, well, I'm going to try. And then about two, three years in, started learning a little bit more about the raw materials. And that was when... We kind of accidentally fell into it and started using only recycled metal and really became committed to that and working with our one um, distributor who is also certified green and how they do treat all their metal um, refining. And, and then within that, just really started to kind of self-educate around what was going on. When I moved to New York, I think it became even more apparent because here I was in this big giant mecca as a Northern California girl, a little, you know, big fish in a little pond, all of a sudden little fish in this giant pond, and the pond had a lot of scum, and it was just kind of like, wait a second, there's a lot of things going on here that we need to change as an industry, and I can't change them by myself, because the raw materials simply don't exist, and they're not going to exist without the demand, so how do we switch the demand? And what year was that? I moved to New York 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, And so...
2: Because I feel like for all, and I said this in my in my opening, for all the press that fashion is getting, particularly since the collapse of Rana Plaza, which was now three years ago, I feel like fashion, the, the spotlight is really heavily on fashion. But when I start to talk to people a little bit about jewelry, and I include it in my book because I think that there's not enough of a spotlight on it, people all of a sudden, they kind of remember Blood Diamond the movie, but then they don 't really know anything else they don 't really know about you know asm minors they don 't really know about like kind of the proliferation of of children in in the supply chain and and so it like do you see that changing do you see do you see people getting more aware even within your colleagues and within the industry
3: oh definitely um, when we first started talking about this i mean I remember <laughs> my PR team, who I love, and they're amazing, we've worked with them for over 10 years. We always wanted to push it. We always wanted to push the agenda. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to cover it. I mean, even fashion, clothing, no one was talking about it. Be it trunk shows, and I talk, try to talk to consumers about, this is made with this, and this is made with that. And I mean, the honesty was, was really compelling, because people would say, listen, I don't want to talk about this, because I'm going to feel really disingenuous and bad, because I'm going to get in my SUV and drive home. And then it was like, well... But I think that one of the biggest problems, and this isn't your question, but I'm just going to make the statement, is I think we, we we spend so much time telling people what they're doing wrong and not what they're doing right that no one feels like they want to do anything right. Or, or they, if they do even just one thing right, people are just going to get mad at them for what they don't do. So, But I feel like that switched a little. So for the first time when I go to trunk shows now, people ask me questions sometimes I can't answer, where I'm like, wow, I didn't know that I'm going to go research that, because all of a sudden consumers are empowering themselves. So I feel like the conversation is shifting. I do even feel like there is, you know, now it's hard to find someone that isn't, as a U.S. US brand um, or, you know, a, a boutique brand, not a major jeweler, I feel like it's really hard to find someone that isn't using recycled gold or fair-mined gold. And if they're not, I think that it, it, you're just kind of like, well, why? Because it's so easy to find now. The stones, for lack of a better word, is the minefield, right? That, that's, that's where, and gold, there's a lot, you know, there's a, a long way to go with mining. Um, but I do feel like it's shifting for the first time and I feel like it's become a public conversation I mean to even be in this format and talking to you with people who are listening on the radio is mind blowing to me because it was this dirty secret no one talked about for so long. Well, and then one of the research
2: um, pieces that I came up with that started me down this path of recycled, oh, God, recycled metal, of course, of course, was that there's already an existence. We've already mined out 157 million tons of gold. So, so there is an – and then if you think about everybody has a mother or a grandmother or an aunt with a jewelry box full of these memories and tokens, and most of those are all made of gold because that was – you know the metal of the of the era mm-hmm. so it it just makes perfect sense to me that people would look for as consumers look for recycled gold and that jewelers would choose to use it as you know something that is like their their chop their top material choice or metal choice
3: i and i totally agree there are some issues with it um, from a technical standpoint when you make jewelry so depending for us We have no problem with it because we're what's called a fabricator. We make everything from scratch. We do not create molds and have them poured and then clean them and set them. When you do that, there's a problem with the refining of how then they secondarily melt that gold into your... It just requires more cleanup. So I think sometimes it's harder to use recycled gold within that, where that's when fair trade or fair mine gold from Ethical Metalsmiths, for example, can help jewelers because it takes away those technical challenges um but for us we don't need that and we because like i said we make everything literally from the gold that we buy
2: and is there anything you won't use
3: i don't use lapis anymore we're going through what we have in house um i think if i had a very if i had a micro minor sell direct to me um that 's when I would use it again um, when when we just found out the geopolitical ramifications of, of what was possibly going on with lapis, I just felt like i just didn't necessarily want to be part of that conversation can um, you
2: expand for for listeners who might not know
3: there's there you know there are rumors going around that a lot of a lot of lapis comes out of Afghanistan in um, certain areas around there, and there were rumors that they they were controlled by Taliban and so the money that was being made from going down the supply chain of purchasing lapis was going back to support terrorism um, so whether or not that's one hundred percent proven it's just something as a gray area i don't I don't necessarily have the time to prove it or vet it, but it's an it's a it struck me hard enough that maybe i I'm gonna go through my resources of what I have and then maybe not buy anymore. I've heard the
2: same about rubies too so do you when it comes to something like that or are, are rumors? I guess they have to be rumors, really. Do do they're
3: rumors, and, but the thing is, stones grow in many different places. Mm-hmm. So it's also then you can look at where am I going to buy these stones. So if I'm going to buy you know, domestic sapphires, Montana sapphires, as opposed to sapphires from or, or Sri Lanka, you know, or that are now in Myanmar, and then there's all those geopolitical ramifications and issues. So that's what's interesting even around stones. Besides the provenance, you know, of how they're taken from the ground, who takes them from the ground, the chemicals that they use from the ground. It's also what what regimes are in power and how do they even treat their citizens who may not have anything to do with getting the jewelry, but then you're abs- you're actually supporting those and, and the sanction issues that the U.S. government imposes on some of those countries. And then if you're buying the stones at a market and you don't even know it... Well, that's why we wish the jewelers... are small and they stick them in their pocket and then they show up and they're yeah. like, hey, look at my Burmese star rubies. And you're like, wow, those are pretty, I want one. And then you go home <laughs> and you're like... I wonder crap. where it came from. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, that's why I wish jewelers would have this conversation a little bit more, because I think, that, I think that most people, like, we definitely know what's happening in Syria. We definitely know what's happening geopolitically in some regions, but it would just open up a whole bunch of understanding about other geopolitical issues that are going on around the globe. If we could actually, if you guys would lead the conversation about, well, we're a little nervous about Rwanda at the moment and Ruby's out of Rwanda, or we're a little nervous about, because then the consumer could start to... To be a little bit more savvy in their choices as well that's my dream that's my dream anyway
3: uh, that's a great dream I think what we don't realize though is a lot of companies even i 'm a small business i to learn those things takes such an amount of time What i'm t- what I was saying because there's not one resource um we're asking and we're putting the onus on small business owners who are really just trying to create product, get it to market, support their communities, and do everything for the most part right. You know, They pay their taxes, the onshore living, working wages for you know domestic manufacturing, packaging, all these things. And then you also say, hey, by the way, find out where all your stones are coming from, every single one of them. And, and please research, educate the world. Yeah, research um, the regimes and the geopolitical ramifications of buying that stone, and then, hey, put that on your website you're kind of like oh my god what else can i possibly do so this goes back to this this conversation of who what we need as an organization because um, we need a space where this information is readily available. Um, I had always advocated at the CFTA that we needed a open source database for resources wherein a designer said if I want to buy cashmere from Nepal or if I want to buy a stone from where would I where where who is the best person to buy it
2: from? Like a Hig for
3: Exactly for jewelers. Or just or even a Hig that wasn't ten thousand dollars to be a member. Mm. So it should be open source, I mean, right? This is about creating change. This should be something we're all sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Hig is awesome um, for I think your listeners probably know what it is, and those people are amazing with the that money that I just casually said oh, it's actually being used to solve problems, and so that's amazing. But I think for small businesses like mine, those 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 possibilities are challenging, and most jewelers are small boutique businesses. Um, we created a, a pilot open source database, wrote a whole deck for it. We we're gonna we created um, a an income stream for it so it would be self-sustaining and then it just became like i this is a whole nother job and so it's it's shelved right now but but
2: i think it's coming because the blockchain i think i think this conversation about technology and open source particularly around um minerals and and things of value i think is definitely coming my gosh we need to take a break so let me get a glass of water and we'll be right back thanks kate
0: And this one is called Stroll by our former intern, Young Malcolm. We'll be right back.
1: New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified Seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. And we're back.
2: I'm your host, Kate Black, and you're listening to Magnifico Radio. And today we're talking fashion and jewelry with Melissa Joy Manning. So let's talk about the CFDA and how the CFDA gets interwoven into this industry. I had read that on your first day, you stood up and asked what the council was doing about sustainability and other members like the Olson sisters just kind of looked at you and, and like it was a foreign word. Was that a moment of courage or was that a moment of just being true to, to what you believed or is it even true? <laughs>
3: It's totally true. But the, the the Olsen sisters didn't look at me as if I was asked a weird question. They just looked at me. And it was just this moment as a first member being like, holy shit, the Olsen twins are looking at me? It wasn't that it was their reaction. It was just the fact that they looked at me. I mean, it was just because all of a sudden I was in this room with these people. I mean, and these are amazing people, amazing designers. I mean, the row is great. So, it, and Diane von Furstenberg and Steven are amazing people. So to actually stand up and kind of Question: what we were doing um, wasn't my intention to be disruptive. It was just my intention to start a conversation. And I think that that conversation really started. Um, there were some looks like, well, wait, what are we doing? And maybe we're not doing anything. But at the end of that meeting, I found myself surrounded by some pretty inspirational people who were like, I've been thinking the same thing and I haven't said it either. So it was just a matter of like standing up and asking the question. And then the momentum started to happen. And I think, you know, that was 2010 or 11. And there's been a lot of changes in the industry since then. So just having a voice and asking a question, and this is where I think it becomes really interesting and that each person can create change, because all of a sudden you galvanize other people. And then those same people who had the same ideas, because I'm I'm no genius, my idea isn't different than anyone else's. It's just like, all of a sudden, we created the space where people could come together and talk about it.
2: And and you have a lot of sustainable jewelers in the CFDA, right?
3: I think it's by it's it's easier to be a responsible jeweler than a responsible fashion designer. Um, within metal and um, labor and carbon emissions and footprints and things like that, there's more resources that exist. The stones, I'm not. Not going to claim anything around stones, and I've always said that I will never claim that we use um, that we're 100% sustainable. If you want 100% sustainable, you can't buy something that you can't buy a stone right now. I mean, diamonds maybe, like with their Kimberly certified and they have certificates, and you know the vendors well, like we do, and but there's still the chance that you know they were smuggled, and then that's that's where it's really scary. Um,
2: That's what I've heard too, or yeah. that swapped yeah. swapped in in the sale, or or just kind of crossed paths with nefarious diamonds. And yeah, no, I've heard it's not even.
3: Yeah, but there, but there, there are people who are doing super interesting stuff. Um, that like well, the there were you know in Africa um, before Ebola, there was a lot of transparency going on with some of the mines there, um, where they were going in and teaching miners about safe practices and then you could buy like collectively almost like you can with pure gold from these mines and that was like this whole business model and then unfortunately Ebola kind of knocked that out the ability to continue that model and I hope someone goes back in there or to other areas and does that. Um, There's some jewelry designers who do things like that. We, we do our best to buy now from small-scale miners where we know their operations and cutters that we ask questions, um, but it's not necessarily everything that we buy. I mean, I can point to certain stones and say this, this, and this, and these. I can say I don't know. and We do our best. Um, but back to the, the CFDA issue and around clothing, is I think it's harder because they have to—just the the, the, the nature—jewelry is direct to market. You know, you could order something from me, and I'll make it, and you have it in two weeks, and I get the resource. So I'm not, I'm not taking an order from you and waiting and condensing all my orders and then cutting bolts and bolts of fabric across the world and then having them sewn and shipped to me and then distributed to you in, like, a cycle that takes— like 12 to 16 weeks. That in itself is non-sustainable. So there's a, a big movement right now even about shifting the fashion calendar and how you get how you get clothing to consumers within that. Um, but yes, there are a lot of jewelers who are interested in this, but there are tons of fashion labels that are too. This goes back to that earlier comment I made about there's people who are doing a lot of things but not talking about it. Because they're not they're not a hundred percent, and then if they feel like if they say, "Well, I'm doing this," someone's going to come along and be like, "Well, you're not doing that." It's a big fear.
2: I talk to, I talk to brands all the time, and that's kind of their ongoing fear. I don't want to say I don't want to say, but I'm, I'm always inspired by Osklin, Right? Like, so Oscar always said, since I met him like 2010 2009, I, I came in contact with the brand the first time as sustainable as possible. And at first, I was like, "Oh, like," because it just left so much so much. It just left so much unsaid. But as I started to digest it, I thought, actually, that's what we need to... There needs to be so much unsaid because there's still so much left to be done. We're still waiting for technology to catch up. We're still waiting for transparency models to catch up with stones, you know, supply chains everywhere. Consumer
3: behavior to catch up. Yeah. There's a lot of things we're waiting for, and, and, and I think that it, it is really about... The collective right one person being 100 percent responsible isn't going to change anything it's if everyone is 10 percent 1 percent 5 percent i mean what i said once to the cfda members were if if all of us just changed 20 light bulbs in our back office and operations it's it saves the carbon emissions of like 50 what's this 50 elephants because children are i mean designers are visual and everyone's like oh you know it's in the collective where we can make changes and then you know but then there's the whole thing where we'll the light bulb issue. You know, there's some light bulbs that are better than the other, and you, you just keep going. It just keeps just going. Tr-
2: well, it's the rabbit hole that you talked about yeah. earlier. So, do you like kick back with DVF sometimes? And you're
3: no. like, hey, Diane, we should
2: change it from CFDA to CFJDA. Like, is there any movement to kind of change the, the name of the council? Because you have no. so much jewelry.
3: No, I mean, because it, the CFDA is a member driven organization, and it's the Council of Fashion Designers of America. And it's, so, it doesn't say Clothing Designers of America, right? It says fashion. So, we what it's saying is that if, if anything is made well and it's fashionable and you have a strong brand, you can be a member, whether it's eyewear, hats, shoes, bags, jewelry, or clothing. I think that there's just all of a sudden a movement within the States because the barrier to entry is lower for jewelry, wherein you can, you know, like I said, you can bring things to market faster. Um, the startup costs are a lot lower. So there there's a, there's a there's a renaissance of jewelers right now i mean we're sitting in bushwick and it used to be like everyone here was a dj right and now it's like everyone here's a jewelry designer you can't hit you can't throw a rock and not hit one so it's just kind of like they're all applying for membership and most of them are great and there's a lot of unique viewpoints and beauty to be made in the world and to share and the idea and the hope is that more people who do this the more people will come to the table with innovation and um, solutions it's amazing. I'm, I'm
2: enjoying this conversation far too much, but we're running out of time. So um, anybody with a television set knows at this time of year that they're being bombarded with all of these commercials and ads to buy jewelry for the holidays. Can you go back to um, that original comment that you made about this blog post? What are what are some things that people who are just hearing about this for the first time are just kind of realizing, oh, yeah, I should think about jewelry as well? What are some things that they should be asking themselves or their seller um, if they're going to be making jewelry? jewelry purchases for the holidays or for some time in the future?
3: I think the first question is where is it made and, and then if someone says well it's made in New York that doesn't really answer your question Does it? Is it made in your own studio and if it is made in that jeweler's own studio what is their commitment to chemical treatment to water usage and to electricity and also to shipping. Um, it's really easy to carbon offset every box you ship. I mean, UPS has a program of global standard like any everyone should just be doing it. Um, so there there's questions of like where is it made and then being like following those steps through. So if it's made in New York ask the questions. If it's not made in New York, you know, made in Denver, ask those questions. And there are other places where jewelry is made cleanly too. So just really asking where it's made in the masking of what it's made so what kind of metal is it is it recycled is it fair trade if it's neither don't buy it i mean it's just i think at this point it's too easy to get either one of those and if if it's not um fair trade or recycled metal i think that that if you are a caring consumer and you want to create change in your community by how you spend your money you might want to find another place to buy Your jewelry, the stones. I think that you you can ask, and maybe they'll have some really great traceability. But I wouldn't um, I wouldn't walk away from someone just because of stones, because anyone who maybe tells you some things about the stones might not be telling you or the complete truth, or some who sold them the diamonds or whatever might not be telling them the complete truth either and that's where stones and jewelry gets a little scary but i think the metal the chemical use the water use where it's made how they ship it um all those questions are easy to ask and you can get really simple questions really quickly and the person from the person who you ask should really know those answers
2: i love it and where can people find out more about you
3: well our website is my name it's melissajoymanning.com um, our blog has that 10 questions to ask list. Um, we also have an e-commerce site. We do carbon offset every box that we ship. Um, and we have three retail locations. So we sell um, here in New York City and Soho on Wooster Street. In Brooklyn on Court Street and in Berkeley, California on Fifth Street. And then we do distribute to major distributors like Netaporte, Nordstrom. So you can find us. Oh, that's and awesome. And we're always available to answer any questions you have and also to learn from you. So if anyone's listening and has some great solutions that we haven't thought of, please send them our way and happy to bring them to the table um, however we can.
2: That's great. Thank you so much for joining. I want to give a shout out to my engineer. David Tadashore for helping me bring this show to life for this entire season. Um, The music from the show can be found on iTunes so thank you to Metro Jesus for promoting or for sharing that. And thank you to Heritage Radio Network, where you can find me each Monday, not over the holidays, but I'll see you in 2017. And you can always listen to Magnifico Radio on iTunes or Stitcher. And maybe while you're there, give us a rating give us a, or subscribe. And please check out our blog or sign up for our newsletter at magnifico.com. And have any questions or comments, you can always email me, radio at magnifico.com. Until next year.